Friends, what an honor it is to stand before you to proclaim the Word of God. And uh, at Central Baptist, we believe that the Bible should be taught carefully. And the point of the sermon should be the point of the text that we are looking at. So we dig. We try to go deep into the text. One of the things that we use to help all of us follow the sermon, follow the message, are sermon outlines. Maybe you walked in and you didn't grab one or, or one wasn't available. But if you would raise your hand, one of the ushers will come down and give you a sermon outline. You will be able to follow us much, um, much easier with the sermon outline. Our text for today is Colossians 2, verse 16 through 23. And this is the word of the Lord. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the thing to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste. Do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here's my question to you. Are you a legalist? Do you impose on yourself or on others rules and regulations that are beyond the scope of what our Lord Jesus Christ requires? If you're a Christian, is your Christianity primarily a list of do's and don'ts? If you're not a Christian, do you view Christians as legalists? Has this kept you from becoming a Christian yourself? Speaking on behalf of Christians, I think if we're honest, we would all admit that we all struggle to different degrees with legalism. The only man who never struggled with legalism was Jesus Christ himself. And we all are being shaped after his image progressively. So, in this message today, my hope is to help my fellow believers to enjoy the freedom we have in Christ. But I also want to say to the non-believer among us, you were right in viewing us as legalists, yet we are gradually finding freedom in Christ. What are you? Are you? Finding freedom 
I want to say this with love and compassion, but also honesty. You too are a legalist. Because you too live by rules and regulations, but they are not the rules and regulations that are found in Christ. So in this message, also, my hope is to help you, my unbelieving friend, realize that you are not free. And that you will only find freedom in Christ. Today we're going to see in our text three enemies of freedom. They mask themselves as good, beneficial, and at times even godly. Yet they rob us of joy and freedom. The very freedom that Christ died to give us. So here are our three enemies. Religiosity, mysticism, and asceticism. So what is religiosity? Now, the word religion is used in the Bible several times, isn't it? I mean, we see it in our text today. We learn from Jude, right, that there is a true religion and a false religion. So, so the word religion is right to describe, right, the Christian practice. Religion is not a bad word. Religion is not the opposite of relationship. Actually, true religion contains relationship. True religion leads to relationship. So, so when I'm saying religiosity here, I am not indicting religion. I am not saying that we should not use the word or the concept of religion. The very fact that we're here this morning is because we are practicing our religion, and that is good. Religiosity, however, is the practice of religion for religion's sake. Religiosity leads to more and more religion. Religiosity, in religiosity, religion is the goal. While in true religion, relationship is the goal. This week we finally have a better look at the false teachers. These were men who were introducing a confusing heresy to the church in Colossae. They, they mixed Jewish legalism with pagan mysticism. They had a grocery shopping cart type of religion. Take whatever you think will work for you and put that in your cart. So I'll take a little bit of Judaism. I'll take a little bit of paganism. I'll take a little bit of Greek philosophy. And I'll take a little bit of Jesus. I'll put all these things in my cart. And when I need one of them, I'll use that. Friends, Christianity does not work like this. Either Jesus is Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. Christ has no rivals. Christ has no competitors. Christ has no contenders. The truth of Christianity is that Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals 
everything. Why? Well, we see that last week we learned that Christ is God. And we are filled in Him. So listen to some of the verses that we read last week. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is God. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the picture is this. God is like an ocean. And we've taken the plunge. We dove in, not just sprinkled, but submerged. God is all around us. We are in Him. Do fish in the ocean ever lack water? Never. Do Christians lack anything? No. We've been filled in Christ. So, here is a really important concept for our, for our time today. So, in Christ, we have already been fully accepted and approved. In Christ, we are approved. In Christ, we are accepted. So, friends, this morning, if you believe Jesus Christ, God is not mad at you. God is not angry at you. You heard the song that we sung earlier, right? And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That wrath should have been on us. It should have been on you and on me. But every sin, all of our sins, all of the sins of all those who are trusting in Christ were laid on Him. So, in the death of Christ... We live, we find life, and we have abundance of life. We have great confidence, great confidence in the work of Christ. We can, we can know that we are His, so we don't need to add to the work that He has presented on our behalf. This is why Paul says in verse 16, 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regards to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Clearly here, referring to Jewish practices, right? Um, in two categories, food laws, you know them. Don't eat pork. Don't eat shellfish. Don't eat meat with blood in it. Don't eat the meat of strangled animals. Don't eat bacon. That one is the hardest one, isn't it? But, but it is true. Is it, isn't it true that Jesus died so we could eat bacon? It, that is true and biblical, isn't it? Now, there is also a reference here to drinking. And not a lot, specific, not a lot of specifics are given to us about uh, drinking in the food laws of the Old Testament. But perhaps this referred to the Nazarite vows or some rituals that priests and Levites had to observe. Whatever it is, whatever it is, Paul is saying, 
let no one pass judgment on you when you partake on these things. Why? Because you are free from the law. Because you've been set free from these laws. We see this very clearly. Mark 7, Acts 10, Acts 15. Jesus has set us free from the law, from specifically the food laws. So we don't call unclean that which Jesus has made clean. But secondly, there is a reference here also to special celebrations, festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths. These were mandated celebrations designed to remind the people of God, Israel, that point, that God is faithful. Remember, God is faithful. But Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. Paul is not saying here that it is wrong for Jews to observe Jewish practices, right? Paul is not saying here that it is wrong for us to observe a diet or another. What Paul is saying here is that it is wrong for us to impose those on others, right? It is wrong for us to impose religious practices on others if Christ has not required those practices of us. Let no one pass judgment on you. Why? Look at verse 17. Because these are shadows of Christ. These are shadows of Christ. Literally, these are shadows, but Christ is the body. Right? So imagine, imagine you're about to meet someone and you, are, and you are glad and excited you're going to meet this person. And when you meet this person, instead of greeting the person, you greet their shadow. And you have a conversation with their shadow. Uh, th that's, that's ridiculous for us to even think about. And yet, to go back to the law and to impose the Old Testament law on New Testament believers, or better said, Old Covenant law on, old, on New Covenant believers, is to say the shadow is more important than the actual person. Those things that would point us to Christ are actually more important than Christ. They were designed to remind God's people of God's faithfulness. But when Christ came, faithfulness came in a person. When Christ came, we met faithfulness. We met the one who is faithful and true. I think Paul puts this concept very clear in, clearly in Galatians. Right, right? So the letter of Galatians is an early letter of Paul. Paul is very zealous in Galatians. Now, I think the Galatian believers were actually going down a wrong path. They were actually replacing Christ with practices of the law. I don't think the Colossians were doing that. But Paul was nonetheless warning them. But listen to what Paul says to the Galatians. Galatians 3, 23 through 26. Now before faith came, and I think faith here is referring to the righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith. Okay? So when the substance of our faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith 
would be revealed. You see the negative view that Paul has of the law here? The law, the law keeps us captive. So then, the law was a guardian. Some of your translations may actually say a tutor. Until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So what is the point of the law? The point of the law is to lead us to Christ. To point us to Christ. So in the law, what do we find? We find the wisdom of Christ. Verse 25, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian or the tutor. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the idea here is that the gift has come. We have received it. So no longer, no longer do we have to look for small things. I'm fascinated by videos of soldiers coming home and surprising their families. Have you seen those? Aren't those Aren't those emotional? Aren't, they, aren't those beautiful? Right? I saw one recently of, of a, I can't remember, I think it was a, a, a Navy uh, soldier, and he was coming home, and there was a great, there was a big present, uh, a big box, and his father was sitting next to the box, and he was inside the box, and he kept putting Outside of the box, gifts for his father, pictures of him, parts of his uniform, his medals, a letter. And the father is, is, is moved by these little tokens, by, by a son who the father believes is far away and is saying, Dad, I remember you. Here is a gift. But, but suddenly out of that box emerges the son. And the father is overwhelmed with joy. Because the tokens that were designed to remind him of the son were good, but they were just good for a little bit. They were just reminders of a son. But when the son emerged, the joy was complete. You see, friends, that's a picture of the law pointing us to Christ. We're getting all these little gifts that remind us of God's goodness, of God's holiness, of, of God's commandments that are good and give life to us. But when Christ came, those things became obsolete because we had the substance. We had the true and faithful God himself with us. So I think there is here, in this passage, a hermeneutical principle. In other words, I think we can learn an application for our own biblical interpretation, how we should interpret the Bible. We have, we have to be very careful to understand the requirements of the, Old Testament, of the Old Covenant law in light of Christ's fulfillment. And we're going to talk more about this tonight. Okay? So, so plan to be here tonight. We're going to unpack this more. Christ said, I came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Paul says, Jesus is the end, the tell us the goal of the law. So we should read the Old Testament law primarily to understand what we should do, not primarily to understand what we should do or what we should not do 
although that's part of it, but we should read the Old Testament law primarily to find and understand Christ. And once we find and understand Christ, we can learn obedience from Him. And what does Christ expect of us? What does obedience to Christ look like? Here's another application. Love is the opposite of legalism. We fight legalism with love. So, so all of these things here, right? All of these things here that, that the Colossians are being threatened with, all of this return to a law that had passed, that had found its fulfillment, how do we fight that? We fight that with love. Galatians 5 again, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand free, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul is referring to the law of a yoke of slavery. For in Christ Jesus, verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, for uncircumcision counts for everything. Well, this is the heart of the law, isn't it? But instead of circumcision or uncircumcision, we find faith working through love. Galatians 5.13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not, do not let your freedom, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Galatians 6.2, Carry one another's burdens. And in doing so, fulfill the law of Christ. Laws don't change hearts. Love does. And true love only comes from the source of love himself, God. And when the love of God is in our hearts, the delight to obey his law will follow. So I remember very vividly bringing Boaz home from uh, the hospital when Indy gave birth. And we were struggling, putting a newborn in our car seats. And I don't know if you remember that, if, you, if you've had children. And making sure that we had every step right and every button clicked. Making sure that he was striped in correctly. And then I remember getting in that car. And I have never driven so slowly my entire life. I did not break one law. And yet, I was not thinking of the law. I was not thinking speed limit here is 45, I'm going to go 35. I was not thinking I need to come to a complete stop at this stop sign, so I'm going to make sure my car stops completely. I was thinking, I love this boy. I love him so much, I'm going to do everything to make sure that he is safe. So you see, the law was fulfilled. But not because I love the law, but because I love my son. And because I wanted to protect him. And because I wanted to care for him. So friends, you see that the law of God is ultimately fulfilled through love. So Central Baptist Church, let us not be a church that looks for legalism, but a church that looks for love. 
Let us not be a church that looks for more rules and regulations, but let us be a church that looks for relationships. Let us not think tooth for tooth, eye for eye, but let us think that we need to lay down our preferences for the good of others. Let us think that we need to know what other needs and how we can meet those needs. Let us think of others before we think of ourselves. And in doing so, every law from our Lord will be fulfilled. Now let's consider mysticism in verses 18 and 19. Now some of us may feel tempted to tune out mysticism because it may seem almost irrelevant to the way we live and think. We are Westerners. We're rational people. Our emotions are always in check, aren't they? Are they? But I think if you engage here, you realize that we all tend to think we can have a deeper experience with Christ through seemingly spiritual experiences. The risk is high here. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you. This is language of salvation. Okay? Let no one disqualify you from your salvation. This is Paul's warning of, of apostasy. Paul is saying, be careful that you don't pursue a religion that looks like Christianity but is not Christianity at all. Now, I think Paul had a very positive view of the Colossians. Paul had already told them that they were qualified by the Father in chapter 1, verse 12. The Colossians were doing well, but they needed to be careful. And this is why Central Baptist Church, who is already qualified by the Father, who is doing well, who loves the Lord, a church where relationships flourish, a church where we indeed worship the risen Christ. This is why this warning is important for you, for me, for us as well. I want you to listen to me because we should not be overly confident of ourselves. Our self-esteem can destroy us. Our self-assessment can be mistaken. Friends, Steam should come from the Lord. We should have God esteem, not self-esteem. We should rightly evaluate ourselves knowing our weaknesses. We should rightly evaluate ourselves knowing that if the warnings are here in the Bible, it's because we're prone to wander. But we should hold on firmly to Jesus Christ. In verse 18, Paul goes on to describe this mysticism, worship of angels, vision, things that, are, that promote pride and a sensuous mind, meaning a mind that is always looking to engage in the senses, an experienced-based Christianity. This may be especially helpful for those of us who may have a Pentecostal background, a charismatic background. Now, we love our 
charismatic brothers and sisters, right? I, I love the work that they've done in the past 120 years to remind us of the work of the Spirit. We cannot be, we cannot be dormant or indifferent to the work of the Spirit. Per capita, charismatics send more missionaries to the field than any other than, and then any other section of the Christian faith. Why? Because they believe the Spirit really works. That's wonderful. We love that. And yet our charismatic brothers and sisters can have a tendency to embrace an experience-based Christianity, where how you feel is greater than what you know. But the Bible tells us that we should not boast in our might, in our riches, or in our wisdom, but you should boast in this that we know the Lord. Knowing God should be the boast of the heart of every Christian. Now, experience is part of Christianity, isn't it? I mean, this morning, perhaps, as we sang, your hearts were warmed. Often we hear the word proclaimed, and our hearts are challenged. That's experience. That's beautiful. Yet our experiences in Christianity will vary from person to person. There is no prescription on exactly how our experiences as Christians must go. At the end of the day, friends, what matters is not necessarily how we come to know the Lord, but that we know the Lord. What matters is not the experience that led us to Christ, but that we are in Christ. But now look at, look, look for, uh, we, we must not look for experiences that are momentary, passing, fickle. Mysticism offers short bursts of spiritual energy, and yet it offers no spiritual nutrition whatsoever. A quick fix, but Christ offers complete restoration. You know, in South Florida, in mid-afternoon, we often, we often look for Cuban coffee. Right? So 2, 3 p.m., right? most offices, there will be some Cuban lady who is a specialist at making Cuban coffee, which is a whole lot of sugar with a little bit of coffee. <laughs> Cuban coffee is wonderful. Cuban coffee does a wonderful thing for that three o'clock slumber. It wakes you up. But just as quickly as it heightens your senses, it also causes you to crash. Why? Because nothing replaces Good, true, genuine rest. Cuban coffee does not offer that. So for a pick-me-up, Cuban coffee is great. But for the true, for the true rest we need, we need to go home and sleep, don't we? We, we need full restoration of, of the body. Friends, mysticism is like Cuban coffee. It offers a quick fix. But Christ offers permanent rest in christ we've entered our sabbath we have completely experienced rest now some of us may say there are certain things that help me and, and that's good and, and that's good but those things cannot become our god those things cannot become our idols so even as i was preparing the sermon i very often prepare my sermons listening to classical music i, I enjoy that and and that's good it's good for my soul so I was listening to Bach's Mass in G, in G minor 
as I was writing the sermon on YouTube, and I decided to look through the comments. I was wondering what the comments would say. And I think the second or third comment on, on, the, on YouTube read like this. There is nothing better than listening to Bach to drive away the demons from my mind. And I thought, precisely, this is exactly what mysticism promotes. You listen to this. You eat this. You do this. You do that. And you find your quick fix. But you always have to go back to Bach's Mass in G minor for that fix. You see, ultimately, mysticism creates dependence. It creates addiction. It creates behaviors that keep us from actually following God. We need that. We feel alive when we listen to this music. Friends, that is not what God offers us in Christ. God offers the fullness of himself in Christ. Now, before we think we are not tempted to mystical thoughts or mystical practices, let me list a few ways here that we may practice something similar to mysticism. When you're tired, exhausted, do you mindlessly scroll through social media and find yourself saying, I'll do this for five minutes. Two hours later, you realize I just, just waited hours of my life. Do you dedicate too much time and resources to hobbies? Do they cause you to create a numb sensation to the actual problems of your life? Do you find comfort in food, in drinking? Do you obsess about physical appearance, exercising? Are these things the source, your source of comfort? Are these things idols in your life? Are these things robbing you of the joy and freedom you can experience in Christ? This is not an exhaustive list. What keeps you from finding true rest and comfort in Christ? Friends, let us not look for things of this world that are here today, gone tomorrow, that perish for comfort. Let us find our true comfort and peace in Christ. Psalm 62 is so helpful for this. And I want you to listen to some of the some words from some lyrics of a song based on Psalm 62 by Aaron Keyes and Stuart Townend. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. That's, that's the opposite of mysticism. Amid the world's temptations, when evil seeks to take a hold, I'll cling to my salvation. Though riches come and riches go, right? Those are the things of the world that promise satisfaction. Don't set your heart upon them. The fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in heaven. Friends, we need to be heavenly minded. We need to look beyond the things of this world. This is the point, friends. We find no lasting delight in the things of this, that this world offers. 
Because the fields of hope in which we sow, they are harvested in heaven. Sense-driven experience will give our souls the false impression of peace. But the only lasting peace that our souls can have is found in Jesus. Look at verse 19. And not holding fast to the head. Christ is the head, and we don't need spiritual fast food because he nourishes us, joins us together, and causes us to grow. We also see, see this from, um, we so see this uh, in this text uh, that for Paul, Christi Christian maturity happens corporately. Paul refers to the whole body that is connected to the head. Friends, it is impossible to faithfully follow the Lord and forsake the, follow, the fellowship of the church. Church membership is paramount for Christian growth. Don't date the church, marry the church. When Paul speaks of Christian growth, he speaks in the context of the corporate gathering of believers. That's why Central Baptist Church, we exist to worship the Lord. We're, we're a group of baptized believers who gather to go, together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in fellowship with one another. So, if you have been coming to our church and you were dating the church, can I encourage you to sign up to Starting Point? Sign up for Starting Point. Next week, we're going to start our membership class. And I want to talk to you about the importance of membership. If you're interested, come talk to me at the end of the service. I'll be glad to talk to you about membership in the church. When we don't look to our own individual experience as the center of our Christian lives, but we look at our corporate experience, we promote humility and unity in the body. A church that is divided is a church, is a church that seeks to promote growth through silos. A church that is united is a church that seeks to promote growth corporately. As we come together, as we join our voices, as we worship the Lord together. The question is not, has everyone had the same experience as me? The question is, is everyone connected to the head that is Jesus Christ? So here is another application. Uh, we need to be careful that we promote unity in areas that God has given us freedom. Now, I know that truth divides, and there are certain things that should divide us from the world. We will not accept non-believers into the fellowship of our church. But where Christ said that we can experience freedom, we should promote freedom. We have to be careful that we don't create burdens where the Lord has created freedom. 
We have to be careful that we don't demand of others things that Jesus died so that we could experience liberty. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. We must not major in minors. Secondary and tertiary doctrines in the Bible shouldn't divide us. We should be charitable in differences. Different styles of parenting shouldn't divide us. Homeschooling, private schools, public schools, unschooling, whatever that means. All of these can be done in a God-honoring way. Cultures, looks, clothing, languages, these are minors. And Christ is major. Friends, the world is coming to our front steps. Brevard County is growing in leaps and bounds. Students from all over the world are coming to live next door to us. If we're going to reach the world that is coming to us, we must major in Christ and minor in nothing. Christ must be our banner. Christ must be our song. Christ must be our message. And Christ must be our Finally, let us consider asceticism. Now, what is asceticism? Asceticism is simply the practice of denying oneself of pleasures. It's the opposite of hedonism, which is embracing all pleasures. The Bible makes no dichotomy between pleasure and the Christian life. God wants us to experience pleasure. Psalm 16, 11 you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 133.1, about the gathering of believers. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Ecclesiastes 2.24, there is nothing better for a person then that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. Proverbs 5.18, about marriage. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Clearly, pleasure and Christianity go together. So in verses 20 through 22, Paul reminds them, Christ died to set you free from the powers of this world. So if you're not part of this world, why do you follow the regulations that are from this world? Now look, look back at verse 21. Paul outlines some regulations there, right? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And we don't know exactly what these regulations are referring to. Clearly, there are, things we shouldn't, there are things we shouldn't handle. There are things we shouldn't taste. There are things we shouldn't touch. But verse 23 helps us understand more what these regulations are. These are things done in order to promote severity to the body 
and asceticism. In other words, these are regulations that are designed to punish the body. It seems that false teachers were promoting the idea that pain in the body promotes greater spirituality. The denial of, ple the denial of pleasures was the way for real piety. You know, once I was meeting with a friend who came to me to confess his sin. And once he confessed his sin, I asked him, have you repented from it? And he said, yes. I asked him, uh, what are some ways that you are, uh, what are some things that you're putting in place to make sure that you don't return to your sin? And he numbered a few of them. And I said, praise the Lord. That's good. And he looked at me and he said, you're supposed to make me feel bad. You need to do more than that. And I said, no. If you've repented and you've taken steps towards not practicing this sin again, you're forgiven, and we need to make sure that you grow. But there's no punishment that I need to impart on you. Why? Because Jesus already died for that. You see, sometimes we want to crucify Jesus again and again. That's, that's a very Catholic practice of the, of, of the crucifixion of Christ in every Mass. But friends, we don't need to crucify Jesus again because Christ died once and for all for sins. It is not the harsh punishment, punishment to the body. It's not about feeling bad. It's about trusting that Jesus died and resting in that sacrifice, and from that, finding the energy to grow. What we need is to be reminded of the gospel. What we need is to be reminded that Jesus paid it all, so we don't have to. Friends, the gospel is for believers. If you're new to us, and Christianity is new to us, you must accept the gospel. If you've been a Christian for a long time, you must not assume the gospel. The gospel is the message that Jesus died to pay for your sins, but not just past, present, and future as well. Jesus meets you at your time of need. Jesus has died, and he will pay, he has paid for all of your sins sins we must trust that message when we first come to faith and when we have been walking with the lord for decades god saved us so we could have everlasting pleasure but everlasting pleasure is only true if experienced in christ the world wants you to find pleasure everywhere but in god and god wants you to know that you will find pleasure nowhere but in Him. Have you tried the pleasures of the world and found them wanting? Have you tried to find your satisfaction in the world and come back empty? Have you come to realize that the pleasures of the world are passing? Friends, God is calling you to abandon your hope in the things of the world.
to abandon your hope in either pleasures or the restrictions of pleasures in the world. And he's saying, come to me and you have pleasures forevermore. Friends, the message of the gospel tells us that we'll never find true delight and true pleasure because our sins will always be with us and will always carry guilt and condemnation in us. But Jesus died, and there is great hope in that. Because when we come to Jesus, we let go of the weights of the world. When we come to Christ, we let go of the burden of sin. When we come to Christ, we don't have to pay in our bodies for our guilt, for our shame. Why? Because Jesus himself paid it all. So my invitation to you today is if the world has deceived you, if the world has tricked you, if the world has caused you to put your faith in things other than God, today is the day that I call you to believe in Christ. Today is the day that I tell you, stop just wetting your feet. Take the plunge. Dive in. Experience the pleasures of Christ. I think this message is especially important for the young men and young women. You have a whole life before you. And the world has told you that pleasures are found in all the wrong places. Would you believe, trust the wisdom of gray hairs or lack of hair? Would you believe us when we tell you? Learn from many of our experiences. You will return empty unless you come to Christ. Fill your life with Him. Fill your hope with Him. Come to church. Surround yourself with godly people. Surround yourself with those who will tell you Christ is better. Jesus is better. The harshness, the punishment of the body are of no value, verse 23, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The Colossians wanted something good. They wanted to overcome sin. But they were tempted to think that freedom from sin was found in the list of things that they would not do. This is not very different from the sin of Adam and Eve, isn't it? Having all trees in the garden to enjoy, they focused on the tree they were forbidden to eat from. They forgot all the things that they could enjoy, all the pleasures that they had, and they focused on the restriction. And they found themselves enslaved to the restriction. Christians don't display their freedom by listing all the things they do not do. Christians display their freedom by listing all the things that they can do in Christ. We replace sinful, sinful thoughts with righteous thoughts. We replace sinful actions with righteous actions. 
Have you tried to overcome sin in your life by restricting your behavior and failed? You know, if behavior restriction worked, everybody that goes into jail would come out transformed. But unfortunately, that is not true. And very often, the opposite happens. And the same is true to us. Mere restriction of behavior will very often increase the sin. Why? Because mere restriction of behavior is not spirit-empowered. Now, there is room for us to restrict behavior. But as we find our hope in Christ, have you tried to overcome sin and found behavior restrictions lacking and wanting? Have you struggled with a sin for a significant season of your life? Are you currently struggling with a sin and you don't know how to overcome it? The ultimate solution is not in behavior restriction or modification, but in the heart's transformation. God gives grace for us to transform. I want you to receive this grace. He gives grace for us to stop looking for pleasures in the wrong places and find it in the right place. Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training. The grace that trains training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We throw ourselves in Christ. We, we, we give ourselves to Christ. We remind ourselves, we preach the gospel to ourselves. We remind why Jesus died, and it is for freedom that Jesus has set us free. When we are struggling with sin, friends, we need the grace of God, the wonderful, powerful, mighty grace of God. Pastor John Piper said in his book, Pleasures of God, grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. See, that's different, right? Grace is power, not just pardon. Have you come to experience this grace? Have you, have you come to experience the grace of God that gives you power to obey Him? Have you come to experience the grace of God that calls you out of your sinful, sinful behavior and says, let me show you a better way. Learn from me. Have you experienced the grace of God that trains us for godliness, for piety, for uprightness? Friends, this grace is available today. It is not found in legalism, but it is found and rooted in the love that Christ has displayed for us. Would you embrace this grace today? Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would empower us to live godly and upright lives in this current day. That today, Father, those of us that are struggling with sin would find freedom. Those of us 
that are struggling because we love the world more than we love Christ, we'd know that Christ is greater, that Jesus is better. Father, give us, give us the grace we need this day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.